We're live. Ready, Marsh? We're live. Mm, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I just wanted to. I'm looking on LinkedIn too because I haven't seen it start streaming on Was LinkedIn. It's up until that. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to make sure. Okay. Yep. So, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Intersection webinar, episode four, titled The Secrets That DEI Leaders Know and Practice with our guest, Annika Komu. I'm your co-host, Jacob Aqua, the Chief Mindfulness Officer of Source Wellness. And I'm your co-host, Marshall Kupkamore, the CEO of Source Wellness. And again, welcome to The Intersection. So The Intersection is a Source Wellness webinar where we discuss the crucial intersection of DEIMW, discovering how diversity, equity, inclusion, mindfulness, and wellness support each other in an integrated approach that provides value in our personal and professional lives. Our goal as a company and our mission is to help all organizations that we work with to prioritize the well-being of their employees. And we do this by helping organizations cultivate inclusive culture to help all employees get a greater sense of belonging, experience more meaning in their work, and drive positive change around organizational productivity and well-being. We do this by providing both learning and development programming as well as HR and DEI consulting to organizations. In this episode, Annika will first be leading a short practice for us. Then we are going to discuss how presence and practice trumps performance and perfection, why vulnerability and humility are essential in building partnerships across differences, how the work of unwinding biases and conditioning is an inside job, and much, much more. Um, and then just a little bit of housekeeping before we introduce Annika. So we're going to be monitoring the chat for questions and comments that come up throughout the session. At the end, we'll dedicate five to 10 minutes for Q&A. So if we don't address your questions or comments right away, just know that we're going to get to them eventually. Um, and now, very excited, I'm going to introduce Annika. So Annika Cohen brings her wisdom and depth of understanding of cultural and systemic behavioral change to conversations about race, gender, and class. She's worked with organizations including Amazon, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Intel, Nike, Microsoft, Eli Lilly, and Zappa, just to name a few. Annika has over 25 years of in-depth experience in corporate culture, organization change, and teaching mindfulness to individuals, teams, and leaders. Annika holds a master's in organizational psychology and leadership development, a master's in divinity, in a master's in divinity, and a professional certificate in spirituality, health, and medicine. She's a certified embodiment and mindfulness practitioner and Unpacked Biases Now facilitator, and has played a massive role in helping us at Source Wellness develop our eight-week mindful DEI program, which is designed to teach the crucial intersection of mindfulness and DEI. Um, so that's enough for me for our introduction. I'd love to hand it off to Annika, and she can get us started with the practice. Thanks, Marshall. Thanks, Jacob. It's such a um, yeah, it's such a deep honor and to work with you all. I was thinking about how you all call forth the best in me and receive me with such gratitude and kindness. And I'm like, oh, what if more exchanges happened in this way of our genius and our wisdom, and that we were celebrated in that? I mean, I think ultimately. 
um, that's part of our shared intention in the world, um, that we learn a new way to connect and relate and contribute together. Um, so yeah, let's start with a, a practice today. And I also love the discipline and devotion the two of you have to starting our meetings with the three mindful breaths. Gosh, what a difference of what we can access and how we can connect and share when we start that way. So I just invite everyone as you come into this um, webinar, this hour together that we get to share that you just allow yourself to kind of land and settle. However, that feels right to you in some ways. We all have our own wisdom of that. I wrote a poem the other day that said, we live too high up in the mind, in the sky, come down. And there is this kind of way that we can be on automatic pilot, kind of driven by the to-do lists and distraction. Um, so as you take a breath, just see what it's like to settle down, down towards the ground. Receiving some breath in, letting it come all the way through your body and back out. And if it feels right, just letting that breath become smooth and even, maybe taking up more space and you can start to feel how the breath and the body and the cells kind of start to do this dance together. Really feeling your feet on the ground, coming all the way down towards the ground so that there's no separation between your feet and the floor and the ground. And again, letting things just slow down and drop down. What would be different if we allowed ourselves to settle and arrive in a meeting space? where important decisions are being made, where we have the, the presence of mind and heart to call forth important questions around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Who's in the room and who's not? How does this impact minoritized, racialized people? Does this move us towards our intentions of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or does it take us further away? That requires a pause, a settling, a remembering. And then lastly, I just invite you to do this practice from Dr. Resma Menachem. He calls the polyvagal nerve, the soul nerve. And here's a, here's a way that we can stretch and work that nerve to help us regulate our nervous system. So important in today's world. So if you can, you can open your eyes and I just invite you, if it feels right, to move from the Center your hips in the center of your body and move your body and look to the left and hold that place and receive a couple breaths. And then slowly come back to center and then look to the right, stretching from the hips and the core Receive a couple breaths here. And 
And slowly come back to center. Let's go ahead and look down. And receive a couple breaths here. And then back up, straight ahead, and then looking up. Feeling that stretch and receiving a couple breaths. And then back to center. And I invite you to practice that inner smile towards yourself, sending yourself love, kindness, gratitude for your own being, your own presence. And then also turning outward, sending it to whomever you're in front of, um, those that you know and those around the world that you don't know, just sending that kindness a ripple out. And with that, here we are, arriving in this moment, in this um, moment that we'll never have. We get to share the next few moments together. So I'm grateful to be here. Thank you so much. That was really, really transformative. And we really appreciate that. Thank you so, so much. I'm still just kind of trying to allow everything to sink in. This is like my first embodiment practice of the day. Mm. Um, and it's interesting how frequently I'll meditate and it'll be very mind focused, but I won't bother to bring my body into it in any subtle way, such as getting some twisting in the spine. So thank you so much for introducing that practice today. Mm -hmm. um, so first thing I'd love to ask you is, It'd just be great to hear some more about your past and some of your influences that have gotten you to the place where you are today in terms of your professional career, in terms of DEI and W. Yeah, thank you. I was thinking about that. There's so many, you know, threads. And I was actually driving home from Portland to Bend, Oregon today, and I had to drive through my childhood home, the town, small town that I grew up in. And your questions were kind of rolling around as I drove. And I thought, oh, I remember the swing hanging from the willow tree in the backyard, looking at the nine mountains, the Cascade Mountains, and swinging and watching the leaves kind of shimmer and seeing the mountains and feeling the breeze. And I can remember having this capacity of being able to pay attention on purpose in the moment, to be more fully here and less distracted. And of course, as kids, you know, we have maybe in some way, sometimes less to be concerned about, but sometimes not. Um, but it, it reminded me that this capacity is built in. And in some ways it gets conditioned out of us by the culture that we sit in. Right. So a lot of this is about remembering how to settle, how to breathe, how to come back into our bodies. So nature and that swing and art and piano were like some of the first immersive experiences I had really being able to be present. And then, you know, some of the other formative things were, you know, early in my career, I worked at the Intel Architecture Labs. So with a lot of engineers that were inventing things, I think I was the only woman 
that was um, in that organization, younger and a woman. Um, and I would sit in the meetings, y'all, and nobody was listening to each other. There was so much competition, like the ideas were not being connected and worked with. And I thought, wow, this is how business happens. I mean, this was one of my first experiences. I'm like, this is how we do it. Um, and then I went on to have a partnership um, and started a, a internet company in the 90s. It's dating me, but yeah, we did a startup. And some of the same things were happening in my work with my business partners at the time. So it really had me be in this question is, is there another way that we can be present with each other, that we can relate and we can innovate and still be effective, but something felt off. So that really led me to go study organizational psychology and leadership. And then that was really where I first connected with a mindfulness practice. Um, and, and then it just really kind of moved from there in lots of different ways. Um, the intersection of mindfulness and DEI, where you all work, um, I think one of the first times that I saw that come together was at the Gates Foundation. We were working with a group of maybe 40 people in a, in a department there, and we were working on collaboration, and we were talking about authentic leadership and mindfulness. We'd done some practices that morning, so this word authenticity starts coming into the room, and there was a young black woman that raised her hand and just said, there's no way that I can be authentic here. I start code switching as soon as I hand hits the door. And a Latina woman spoke. There were all sorts of different people of color that started to speak up about authenticity. We don't get that. And it was at that moment that I was like, I've been doing work around um, racism and my own racism over here and practicing this mindfulness, but I hadn't brought them together. And it was a moment where I was like, I need to step back from all of my work because I could be doing incredible harm, not knowing how a concept that I think as a white woman, everybody can relate to, it lands very, very differently, depending on your social identity, your race, maybe your sexual orientation, um, all sorts of different dimensions. So that was, <clears throat> that was one of my first awarenesses, like I need, I need to do a lot of work so that when I'm teaching, I can be less likely to be oppressive or harmful in how I'm showing up. That's kind of a long answer, but. <laughs> no, that was incredible. And it's really awesome that you were able to have that awareness for yourself. Because um, it's not easy, A, to recognize that we could be doing harm and B, to acknowledge the fact that we could be doing harm. Because often it feels better to run away from that than to acknowledge it and sit with that difficult right. reality. Yeah. Absolutely. My co-facilitator at the time, Marshall, at the end of the, the day said, where was the, the light and inspiring Annika? You really let things get heavy. <laughs> Another white woman. And, I, and it was at that moment that I was like, I really have to, to go and do some work because I don't want to participate in, in sugarcoating and bypassing some really important differences. Um, yeah. It was a humbling and and somewhat, uh, it, it was an initiation that day. Mm -hmm. But you're right, there's a choice. 
there's choices every day, invitations into deepening our learning in this space, right? And we can we can lean in and say yes, or sometimes we're not ready, or sometimes it's too scary, um, which is where this practice of mindfulness and being able to have some emotional fitness, <laughs> capacity to regulate and to choose to show up in a way that's in alignment with, with the world we want to see, right? Yeah. So then once you realize that, um, what was the first step that you took to start to move against that trend that you started to notice appearing in your own practice and in your own work? I really immersed myself with lots of different um, teachers, mainly black women, um, women of color, um, Desiree Lynn Attaway, Erica Hines, um, many, many others. But I, I think I... I did the equivalent of probably a master's degree of study over a couple years. And, and I did, I did take a step back from my mindfulness practice. I stopped teaching. Um, it felt that important to me at that point in time. I know not everybody can. Um, and there were, and, and I also said no to some contracts where I was being asked to come in and develop mindfulness programs, but with, that they weren't as interested in bringing that DEI lens and it just no longer felt like integrity. So that's why I so celebrate um, what you all are doing because I think it is the place that we, we are sitting today, you know, and it's what is, is really needed. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. It's, it's not easy to have that kind of integrity um, and I know something that we've talked about, we talked about before, um, but something that I think would be nice to bring up here is the role that vulnerability and humility played and you being able to do that um, and you being able to recognize that you weren't maybe having the impact that you thought you were having and then to take that step back. So could you talk a bit about vulnerability and humility and how you were able to have enough of both to take that step back? Yeah, I, I don't necessarily... I don't know. I had been already working with um, with an anti-racism like that was kind of like she says, I'm whiskey, no chaser. That was the kind of work um, that she does. Um, and so I was already kind of churning in the work. And I think that the breaking down of what I would call defenses that a lot of white folks carry that stop and shut down conversations about race. Um, I had already started to have those defenses softened, um, sometimes really addressed directly. So there was already a humbling process in play. And then the thing that I did that day that I noticed in the room as voices from people of color started to show up, I also saw a lot of white people putting their hands up and I just paused it and didn't and held the space for those voices just to land. And we did a bit of a mindfulness practice right after, you know, five or six folks um, spoke. And I think that was the heaviness, the weight that my co-facilitator was noticing. So I really, I think, allowed those voices to be absorbed. These are, these are people, these are colleagues, these are what would it be like to be having that experience? And I could relate in different ways, not around the color of my skin, but in different experiences that I've had of what it feels like to have to leave significant aspects of who you really are 
behind. But vulnerability that, you know, Erica, Erica Hines, one of my teachers says, um, stay humble and ready to fumble because in this work and the complexity of this work, you know, we're just a, you know, I'm just a moment away from stepping in it. So how do I stay close to the ground? So I don't have a big drop, <laughs> you know, don't get arrogant or too comfortable that I got it. Um, stay down low. Again, that seems to be a theme. Stay, stay close to the ground and then have the practice of, of repair on board. So when I do make a mistake, I can do my best to make a repair. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so mm. important. And I feel like that's something that's not talked about enough. Mm. And it really seems like that sense of holding space, that sense of staying grounded is something that's so important in this work. And what is what are some of the practices that really keep you you know in your body like we i guess did earlier today or are there other practices that i guess help you through your dei and mindfulness teaching that keep you grounded throughout that work mm -hmm. you know i i was thinking about um you know how self-care um is so important so that we don't let pain, frustration, anger, anxiety, build up in the body, in the nervous system. And then as Dr. Resmo will say often, then we blow it through other people. And if we're in that stressed space, and it's also there where some of our fixed conditioned patterns can arise. Sometimes I think we see this with police violence in the States, right? There's some of these unconscious biases that are hanging out there. You have an intensity, you might have some buildup of stress, frustration, trauma, and then it's like, and then it gets blown through um, the space and other people. If I love this quote, if we don't do our work, we become work for other people. Um, so for me, things like getting out in nature um, doing embodiment practice. I think about it always as like, I'm putting deposits in the bank account of presence. So when I have a big withdrawal, hopefully I have resource on board. Um, so the more times that we pause throughout the day to collect ourselves, to ground, to remember, to do a simple, you know, exercise of the vagus nerve, you know, to do your three mindful breaths, um, I feel like where we're sitting in culture today and the societal trauma that is ongoing, and I don't know when it will, will, will cease or where we'll hit that tipping point of a transformation. So in the foreseeable future, it just feels like in some ways ethics as a human being to take super good care, to not let stress and pain accumulate. And I do. I, and I have, and I've also seen who I am mm, when I went some of the worst aspects of myself um, come out when I'm not in that practice. So nature, art, tea, breathing, um, appreciation, um, being in the wonder of nature that's around us. Um, yeah, 
all of those different things. My go-to practice is is for embodiment is Judith Blackstone. She was my embodiment and, and meditation teacher for several years. And she really helps connect us to the core. So oftentimes we can get out on the surface of ourselves and engaged in all the tasks and great things that we're up to and relationships. And we forget about the background presence. And so a lot of her work is like remembering the core um, presence of who we are and bringing attention to that throughout the day. So settling back and down, becoming aware of um, the center of our minds and the capacity for understanding, uh, center of our throat, the capacity for voice and speaking and sharing, the center of our chest, deep in the center of our chest and our capacity for compassion, um, going down all the way to the center of our pelvis and our capacity for trustworthiness and really settling um, like that background presence. And it, you know, as we train, as we train these muscles, which, you know, that's why we practice, you know, they're more accessible to us in the micro moments. We might not have to, although it's so lovely to do a longer practice, the more we train, there's a pathway that is accessible, right? So yeah, that's some of it. And to the point about the pathway, a common thing you'll hear in neuroscience is neurons that fire together, wire together. So right. if you're just in, I really like what you said about the bank account, because you think of it every time you practice, you are putting a deposit in, you are changing the structure of your brain so that it will just be a bit easier the next time around. It will be a bit easier the next time around. Of course, this work is never linear and it will feel like you're going backwards sometimes. It's just bound yeah. to happen, but you yeah. actually are constantly depositing. You actually are constantly moving in the, what we could call the right direction. Absolutely, yeah. That's scary, right? like whatever environment we're placing our bodies, our nervous systems and our brains in habitually, the brain is wiring for that pattern, mm -hmm. which is why it's so important to practice what we intend and what we want. And I'm seeing in the chat, like mindfulness is self-preservation itself in a world where we're constantly combating and being bar bombarded with not enough, more is better, mm. reduction that ability to settle and to, to also know like which invitations to produce or be effective. Do I want to say yes to you and which ones do I not want to? I, I find that that discernment comes online the more I practice. Mm -hmm. Discernment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a really, really big phrase in a lot of contemplative practice traditions. Um, and then as, as you start to get deeper into your practice, you start to be able to discern better because you have more subtlety. Um, Jacob and I did cognitively based compassion uh, training, teacher training, CBCT through Emory University. And they like to use the analogy a lot of looking at our emotions as from a spark to a forest fire. And when you have more subtlety, a more fine tuned awareness, you can catch the spark. When you have better discernment, you can catch the spark so that it doesn't turn into something that's well out of your control. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it, and it does, the more we practice this capacity of presence, of integration, coherence, all of these things, our capacity to show up in complexity, in challenge, and in the world also increases. 
Mm. So we practice, we have more presence, we have more capacity, we can show up in a greater, in a greater way to serve, um, to create, to innovate. And then we step into that, we embody it, we meet the challenges. Mindfulness helps us move through those challenges, work through whatever we need to, to be able to, you know, inhabit that new, that new place in our lives. Yeah. And you just mentioned complexity. Um, another term that we've talked about a lot previously is uncertainty. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk a bit to the relationship between our ability to deal with uncertainty and our practice of mindfulness yeah. and wellness more broadly. Yeah. Here's the, you know, it's, it's interesting because I'm just getting ready to start a launch a um, DEI accelerator leadership program with senior leaders at a large company for the next four months tomorrow. And I was thinking about it that often what shuts down any growth, but growth and work in DEI, I think in organizations is we'll get the information and then we're scared to take the first step because what if I don't know enough? We never will know enough. What if I don't feel competent and confident? Well, we probably shouldn't, depending on our identity and how long we've been in the work. We're never going to feel like we got it all dialed in, I don't think. So how do we be able to manage that uncertainty and the unknown and the imperfection? And then when I, when I take that down, I think about what am I most scared of if I were to make a mistake? I'd be scared of the experience of shame, of humiliation, of self-judgment, of um, others' judgment. Okay, that's really what I would be most scared of is an emotional experience that I might not be able to bring kindness and presence and spaciousness to, right? So when we have mindfulness on board, it can be, yes, this is still scary. I don't know what's gonna happen. But I know that if I make a misstep or something goes on, can I can I be a safe harbor for those emotions and sensations that I might not want to experience if something goes wrong? Um, so I think once we have this on board, and sometimes I feel barely able. I had experience this week that was super challenging, and I could feel my nervous system and emotions and all sorts of things. And I'm like, okay, I feel barely able to be safe harbor for myself, but I could imperfectly. So uncertainty is, uncertainty is, and I think it's just been brought more to the forefront of our awareness in the last few years. It is uncertain, it is complex, it is ambiguous. So can we bring kindness and a safe harbor to those emotions and still show up anyway, knowing that we have a place to come home to. And that's so interesting how, yeah, with even in this, with this DEI practice where we're really stepping out of our comfort zone, it's something that we, we want to do perfectly, even yeah. We don't want to have any shame associated with it. We want it to be held. We want it to just, you know, feel good. And it, it's not, it's, it's just not. <laughs> um, the, the ability to hold it all in spaciousness, like you were saying, mm -hmm. presence, self-kindness with self-compassion. These are all the practices 
that mindfulness and compassion really cultivate within ourselves. And so it's, it's wonderful to bring that all into, into play that this is not a perfect process and this human experience is not a perfect process. So it's, it's very much in line with that. Yeah. 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 And it's a relationship, this work. It's about at its core about how we're relating to ourselves and each other. I mean, that's a lot of it. And what relationship has anyone had that goes perfectly that is without <laughs> mistakes and messiness? Not me. So, yeah, it is. And and that you know, Tema Tema Okun in her work around white dominant culture and the characteristics of that talks about perfectionism and how how it is in our culture and how it really does can shut down and harm creativity and progress towards our DEI goals. So how can we appreciate the learning and unlearning process and the messiness of that. Um, and also know that no one has it dialed in. So a lot of times we're running experiments. We're going to try something. Hmm, what happened? Get feedback, iterate, learn. Um, I know there were moments early on as I was waking up to my, my privilege, my advantage around skin color, around being a white woman and doing things and then just getting like called out and just the complete wreck I was behind the scenes, you know, and I learned really quickly, like, I can't collapse. I have to have my own back. I have to also care for my own trauma because I think anytime we touch any of these issues, we're both wanting to hold the lived experience of those that might not have the same advantage that we've had due to systemic inequities, but also hold the ways that we also have been hurt by a culture that in some ways dehumanizes. So how do we track both of those and not drop ourselves? Um, I don't know how I got started on that, but it just feels like a really important part of the work is, you know, how do we, how do we care for ourselves well and not get caught in that shame-based perfectionism? Yeah, that's a great question. And so one thing that I wanted to ask a bit earlier when we were doing the embodied practice and um, you just brought up awareness of trauma. Um, I was wondering if you can talk a bit too, because you have experience teaching embodied practices um, and most of the time it's easy to just say, you know, go feel the sensations of breathing. What does it feel like to be inside your body? And it's really easy to do that without considering always that there are people who are going to have reactions to that. It will bring about trauma. So it needs to be done in a trauma-informed way. Yeah. And I was wondering if you would mind talking a bit more about the role of that awareness of trauma and like that awareness of, I might not have this but you might have it. And then I need to be able to hold space for everyone's experience here and now. Right. Right. There's so many different types of trauma that can be present in a space all at one time, you know, intergenerational collective, the, the traumas of genocide and slavery that have been passed through our familial trauma, um, developmental trauma, the trauma of COVID, trauma of racial violence, trauma of school shootings. Like we have so much that's, that is active right now. Like, I don't think there's probably anybody in culture right now that hasn't been touched by that. 
and some of us in different ways than others, depending on our background, our identity, our race. So I think the first step is just acknowledging and, and often right now in the DEI work, that's one of the first things we do is just acknowledge the trauma that we've been through, the trauma in the space. And I had a senior vice president this week that I was coaching said that was so important is he, he's a white man, has a lot of privilege and has had a lot of trauma over the last couple of years um, in different ways. And he said it was so helpful to just have it named so knowing that it's there, knowing again that that as practitioners, we can't care and it's not our job to care for, like fix or change or repair, but we can do things like make invitation to practice, give multiple options when we're leading a practice. If it feels right to you, find your own way here. You might try this, you might try that. Um, that can that can really help people feel like they have choice because yeah, leading people right into their bodies and their breath, sometimes that their body and, and breathing doesn't feel safe. So sometimes it's maybe looking and letting your eyes rest on different things that feel pleasant in the room, or it might be that the feet actually feel okay or finding some place in the body that does feel safe and connected to put some attention. Um, but giving people invitations rather than commands can be really helpful. And I, the way that I was first taught mindfulness was a lot of commands. So I'm still working on how do I invite practice and also maybe plant seeds of different pathways or options that people can find and try on. I'm not sure if that answered what you were wanting to get at, but yeah. It was very helpful. Yeah. And just to start to shed light on, because of course, trauma awareness and being trauma-informed, that's like a whole thing that we can't even begin to cover here. But I think that that really is the key point. And as we've been learning on our own journeys at Source Wellness, we've really found that, in my opinion, one of the best ways to make sure that you are being trauma-informed is just to be very aware of the fact that there can be trauma in the space and then give a lot of options and not command anything. So um, yeah. I think that that's a really, really important first step. Yeah. And, and always, 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 I tell people like, follow your own path. You know better than anyone guiding you what your pathway is to settle. And if you even want to settle, mm. um, I also talk a lot about hot and cool practices because there's different sometimes. Sometimes we need activation. We need stimulation. We need a drum. We need to dance. We need to sing, chant, move, run. We can, we can do all of the things with, with awareness on board. And sometimes we need to do things that lift, that raise the spirit, that raise our energy and our courage and our boldness. And sometimes we need things that kind of settle us and ground us and be in, and maybe combinations of those things. Um, so sometimes that's, you know, the calming grounding route might not fit somebody's constitution. So what other ways can we start to expand how we practice. So it's so interesting as that hot and cool practices, because, you know, sometimes also people might be falling asleep with a, with a cool practice. <laughs> and it's like, maybe in during the workday, for example, we, we need to, you know, be activated in a way that you know, isn't, you know, trauma activation, but as a uplifting yeah. experience. Yeah. That, that was very interesting to me. Really yeah. Yeah. Humming, 
um, you know, even the, the, the turning and the looking is, is, but I think it's probably a sweet spot with a nervous system. It can kind of help you whichever way you need to go. I, I really like that practice, but yeah, sometimes folks get very sleepy and it's like, is it because they need more activation in the system or is it because they're sleep deprived, which so much of the culture can be like just right. really needing some deep rest. And so sometimes sleeping is a good thing. Yeah. It might not always be a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rest and is something that we've been thinking a lot about as a company um, and the people who we work with are all such high achievers and high performing people that they really need to be reminded, you know, it's okay to rest, you know, you don't have to work 12 hours every single day, like take a nap, you know, go take some time, go to the gym, spend some time with your family, nourish yourself. Um, and we're always doing it from the perspective of we care about you as a person. Uh, and you can also look at it from the perspective of if you don't nourish yourself, how can you do anything? Um, so we don't like to think about rest in the in the context of rest to be productive, but there's an undeniable link there that mm -hmm. you know if you just are gonna be real with yourself, you need to rest, and if you want to be productive. Mm -hmm. Dr. Dan Siegel has something called the healthy brain platter, and I think there's eight or nine types of different. Um, time he says we need so we need to be able to focus and be protective we need to be able to connect and relate we need to just play we need do nothing zone out chill time um we need sleep time we need you know movement and that platter is helpful because you can start to look at and say these things actually impact my brain health my body health um and which time which time do i need more of and, you know, some of my best, most creative inspiration, insight comes when I've been out in nature or doing things that I love and feel really resourced. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think when we look at dominant culture, dominant culture says we're always on, always productive. We're always moving in a linear way forward to achieve. When in actuality, when we meander out here and have some connection time or go over here in nature or have some quiet time in or just like zone out, that's okay too. Like just stare at the wall or look at Netflix. There's nothing wrong with that when it's not overdone. Um, yeah. So what time, what kind of time would help feed me, resource me and help me show up? Because um, so often, I don't know about you all, so often if I'm depleted, I'm just spinning my wheels. I'm distracted. I'm fuzzy. I'm staring at the screen. I start to try and multitask. I do all these things. And it's like, this isn't, this isn't the time right now for this. I need something else and then come back to it. And it, and it comes very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And I would love to hear your perspective, especially with your organizational psychology background. So yeah. everything that we've been talking about so far, and it's been very broad and expansive, but I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about how we can effectively bring these in to organizations, how we can start to basically like systematize and operationalize things such as mindfulness for the purpose of, you know, cultivating humility, cultivating vulnerability, um, how we can start to bring more rest in, how we can start to merge the topics of DEI, mindfulness and wellness in a systemic way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
That's, I think that's our challenge, right? Because yeah. a lot of times culture is, is, you know, these are forces that are kind of like, I, I often will have people come into these eight or nine week programs and they're like, oh, this is like an oasis. This is like sanctuary. Um, and sometimes they can have trouble figuring out how to integrate it when the culture is telling them don't rest, don't pause, more is better, go, go, go. So how do they, how do they bring this in? Um, but I think it does take courage. And a lot of times um, people are probably going to want to be practicing too. So part of it is just courage to just start and prioritizing ourselves. And we can do that at the beginning of the day um, we can do that at the beginning of a meeting like you all do. That can make a be a game changer. Um, I often say pause more often throughout the day. Um, I'm not sure how we go from a culture that has erased differences and perpetuated exclusion and inequity to one that prioritizes inclusion and belonging and equity without the pause without a sense of presence to bring in questions that we haven't asked before. You know, we, and, and eventually, hopefully those questions will become more automatic, but I would really encourage people to pause at decision points, to pause when you have a program or product meeting and really pause and, and, and have those questions at the ready of who's in the room whose voice is predominant, whose voice are we not hearing? Who do we need to reach for and bring in? How does this impact different groups? Um, you know, there's so many times where we see marketing and advertising or even products that have been developed that if those questions would have been asked, you know, they would have been more effective. They might have not had, you know, a public mishap and a misstep. I think about, um, I think about Walmart and the Juneteenth ice cream and all the celebratory things. And it was like, who was in the room when, when those were being developed and who, who was being asked and what questions might have been there. So we have to, we have to pause and until it becomes second nature to ask these questions or just a part of an integrated way of being, I don't know when that will happen. It's not there for me yet. I have to pause and be intentional. So I, I think that can be helpful. Um, I know for everything that I lead and do, we always start just as you all do with mindfulness practice, with emotional intelligence and regulation practices, relational practices are really important. Empathetic listening, empathy, having, being able to be with strong difference that challenges your own without abandoning either. Can I hold your difference and mine? And can we be in a dialogue? That's really hard to do. So those types of practices, um, I think we're still in a lot of training. Um, those are just some of my thoughts on how we how we start. And it, it does still feel quite early on in the mass adoption of these kinds of practices. And yeah. I like to look to the past and think about how many people even knew what meditation or mindfulness was in let's say 2000 versus how many people know it it is in 2022. So we're clearly trending in a direction of greater acceptance of greater like practice and internalization. Um, 
and thinking about that always gives me some faith. And I know I'm pretty biased because the job that I do means that I'm interacting with people who have this perspective on a regular basis. So very frequently I find myself like, oh, we're all, we're all doing great. Look at us all caring and being very intentional to make the world a better place. But um, of course that's not the whole trend, but it's definitely happening. Mm-hmm. It's definitely here. And it's definitely something to like find some peace and comfort and hope in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Seeing a question in the chat, can we discuss mental burnout in dominant culture and how much some of these practices are going against a cultural ethos, a cultural agreement on how we're going to work and be together. Definitely. What do you all think about mental burnout and dominant culture? How are you seeing it, working with it? Yeah, it's, it's almost like our culture doesn't care if we burn out because mm-hmm. the the machine of let's say the nation or the machine of any given business or capitalist structure knows that there will be new people to go in if there needs to be so mm-hmm. the dominant narrative that i found is like you just go 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 until you can't anymore and then that's about that and then you can get cast by the wayside and then the system just keeps on operating because when there are billions of people in the world, then the system can treat people as a renewable resource. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When in reality, every single one of us has this like immense inherent value that needs yeah. to be celebrated, that needs to be recognized. So I found that mental burnout in our culture, it's almost the norm. It's what's mm-hmm. to be expected. The longer people work, and I remember from leaving college and transitioning into the work world, people are like, yeah, just work for X amount of years and you won't have that faith anymore. You won't believe anymore. You won't, you will get jaded was the the general consensus and um, started this company because I just didn't want to believe that that had to be the case and working against it to make sure that, you know, people can come to work and like, you know, maybe not be in a great mood and then come to work and be in a better mood and then bring that good mood back to their families or um, mm-hmm. people are struggling. They come to a session that we're hosting and then they're doing better, you know, so mm-hmm. we can be a force for positive change. Um, we can be a force for like helping to recognize the inherent value that we have as a human while still respecting and honoring the differences that we all have um, and how those make us special as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think another, um, thing to talk about too is, you know, we do talk a lot about self-care and how we can cultivate these practices on our own. And I think also establishing, finding, connecting with communities of care as well, um, because there are like-minded people out there that want to practice mindfulness, that want to integrate DEI and mindfulness. I mean, we're all here talking about it now. So there are people who really do care about these things within your company. Mm-hmm. these large companies do have people that are interested in these topics. So I guess in, something that really can help is just doing your best to embody these practices on your own and naturally, you know, speaking about these things as much as you can in a way that feels safe for you. Um, finding other like-minded people that you can either practice with or talk to about these things in a way that feels safe and, and um, really brings nourishment through connection mm-hmm. because you are, social beings we do need to practice together mm-hmm. we do need to find these pockets of you know 
goodness with any like with each other. So I think it, it is possible to, you know, while going against the grain and experiencing burnout, helping each other through nourishment um, can mm-hmm. be something that really can help. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, oh, gosh, ooh, this is a big question, right? And <laughs> I do see a time when this system burns itself out and it destructs and it no longer is the norm. I don't know when that will be probably, I don't know in my lifetime or not, but there will be a tipping point. I feel that really true, truly like there's going to be a shift at some point um, because I don't think it can continue to operate as it is um, and how it uses human and planetary resources and abuses that I think about a lot of work a colleague is doing at Johns Hopkins around the diseases of despair that we're seeing in culture around anxiety and depression and suicide and different violence. Um, that is an outpicturing of a sick, sick culture that is operating in that way. So I don't want to bypass that reality. And at the same time that that is happening, there are new things rising up, right? And new companies being founded by folks like you leaders that are going through their own transformation are coming up with that wisdom. So it's kind of like, how do we care for ourselves in this system that I think is going to burn itself out eventually and energize um, new pathways, new companies, new ecosystems within companies. I'll never forget, there was this Intel engineer that came into one of the practice sessions at noon um, at Intel, we had hour long every Tuesday and Thursday, I think, for just drop-ins. And he walked in the door and he's like, oh, good. I'm at the new Intel. <laughs> and so I think we're going to have cultures within cultures in companies and pockets of wellness where people are going to practice these things. And hopefully they'll become the, the shining light and the guiding force of a new way. And we'll get to see that nothing is lost nothing is lost everything is gained when we pause slow down connect relate nothing's lost and um, our humanity and our well-being and our creativity gets to come online in in really powerful ways yeah i think it comes largely into a question of what do we value as a society like do we value getting as much productivity out of every single unit of productive power that we have? Um, or do we value happiness to a certain degree? Do we value creativity? Do we value rest and nourishment? Um, in dominant culture, a lot of the time, the answer is no, we don't really value happiness. Like we don't have any real way of measuring happiness the same way that we do like GDP, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have any real way of measuring human connection and how much we feel like we belong in our little pockets of society. Those things aren't very actively measured. And I think part of the reason why we don't know as a society how to improve them is because we don't know how to measure them. So then we just say, oh, don't worry about it. It doesn't really matter because it can't be measured. But as we all know, just because it can't be measured doesn't mean it's not impactful or meaningful. Right. Can't always me- measure the mystery, that's for sure. Right. Uh, but we know it. And and who is dominant culture but people? I mean, it's a system as well, 
often systems, but we also have more influence and courage and more options. I mean, in some ways I've divested from a lot of investing in that in different ways in my life and feel happier. I look at some of my colleagues that stayed at Intel and, and I do see the toll that it's taken sometimes to sit in those cultures. And I've seen people that have, that can thrive and lead in new ways in those same systems from their own practice, their own ground, their own foundation. Um, there's something, there's some quote, right? Like, just give me a patch of earth, a solid patch of earth. And from there, I can move the earth. I can move culture. And I think this is what this practice does, is it gives us the ground within our bodies and hearts and minds and nervous systems on the ground below us and can encourage us to be, you know, to take these risks, um, to in make invitation. Um, and to start, start, start small, start close in with ourselves and start close in with our teams and those that are around us. Yeah, I just, as I'm hearing you talk and it brings me, it, it makes me, it brings me emotion. Like it yeah. makes me emotional just hearing, you know, how much this practice has grounded me in my journey with you know with mental health and my DEI journey and, and how possible it is to really find that ground. And, yeah. Um, like we were saying earlier, it's that sense of familiarity, that sense of connecting back with that sense of nourishment that is available as as hidden as it can be, as hidden as it feels, you know, that sense of nourishment. The more we strengthen those muscles of the heart, we really can come back time and time again. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the dedicated, consistent practice. Um, just like, I don't know, brushing your teeth. You're going to brush your teeth every single day or else in time you will start to see the impacts of not doing it. It's not exciting. It's not something people are <laughs> flipping, doing backflips because like, yeah, I get to brush my teeth today, but you know, you get to do it and then you get to keep dental hygiene and then you hopefully don't have to go to the dentist so much. And you know, yeah. it's a whole cascading effect. It's the same with meditating. It's like, I don't find meditation particularly exciting. Sometimes it does feel like a chore, but I know that every time I sit down and do it, I'm making a deposit. I'm doing yeah. something meaningful. Every time I sit down to learn more, Every time I put myself out there to be vulnerable and humble, might not feel great, might not be the thing that I want to do most in that moment, but thinking of myself as a being that expands through time, it's something you have to put the, you have to put the effort in, you have to put the legwork in. Definitely. Definitely. You know, I, I think that, you know, the practice starts to get sexier and more interesting, um, when we see what it enables, like, ah, I get to show up at my best. I get to be a resource in the room. I get to have access to deep insight that changes things. I can bring my creativity or voice in. Um, I can be there in a challenging situation with a colleague or a partner or a friend when there's conflict and tension. And I can more often, you know, um, you know, soothe myself enough to stay connected or to um, preserve how, the, how I want the relationship to be on the other side of that conflict. So I think the more that 
we get to see what the practice also enables us to be, that we get to show up more in alignment of who we want to be, more an embodiment and expression of those qualities we want to see in the world. Um, it still might not be always a fun choice, but it starts to get a little bit more like, oh, what, what will this practice, what will the fruit of it be? Because there always is. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. And um, I'm seeing that we're getting right on the edge of time here. Uh, so I'd love to invite you if there's any last things you want to say, um, and then also extend the invitation, if you'd like to direct people to your social media, your um, website, you know, whatever you'd like to say is your closing remarks and whatever you'd like to share is your closing uh, resources. Mm. Well, you can find me at AnnikaKoman.com and at LinkedIn um, on it's Annika, I think underscore Coleman. So you can check me out there also on um, Instagram. What do I want to say as far as closing? That it's it, it's time for us to um, to root ourselves deeply. Um, that the the kind of shakiness of the world right now and the uncertainty um, is issuing us a call to find what roots us. What's that taproot that if we nourish that thing will help really ground us and also help us blossom and continue to emerge in spite of sometimes challenging conditions. So that taproot is that big root. So it, it might be meditation or it might be art or it might be I go for a run, but I do my running consciously with awareness of my breath and my body and what's around me. You know, what is the thing? It could be cooking. It could be caring for elders. I, whatever the practice is, music, um, make sure that you're making that investment in your own taproot right now, because that will steady and guide you and resource you as you navigate turbulent times, and then also give you the energy to bring yourself forward, to render who you are into the world, because we need you. We need people um, that have a vision for what's possible and know how to be courageous and consistent and stay true to it right now. I think that's what I would have to say. Wow. It really is time to, to ground and root deeply. Yeah. That's oh. awesome. Love it. I just want to say thank you so much to you, Annika, for taking the time to share your wisdom with us. Um, Jacob, I know you weren't feeling the best today, but thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom as well. And thank you, everyone, for sharing in the chat, asking questions, and being here with us for this journey because it really did feel like a journey for this journey of a webinar that we went on today um yeah. so i just like to extend my gratitude to everyone and we're gonna sign off now so have a great rest of your day thank you it's awesome bye everyone thank you all so much take care